Hello, this is your host, Victoria Austin, and you're listening to Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows' weekly threat intelligence podcast that covers the latest stories impacting the industry. Wherever you're listening in the world, I hope you're safe, well, and healthy during this unusual period. In today's episode, we have a packed agenda, and joining me in the virtual podcast studio, I have Jamie Collier and Demelza Griffiths. Hello. Hello. Hi, Victoria. Good to see you, Demelza. Yes, Demelza, it's, it's her um, first episode to Shadow Talk. So yeah, this is um, a special one. So thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you. This is really exciting. Thrilled to be here. Um, we're going to dive straight into um, the first story. And that is around uh, the San Francisco airport, the Bay's largest airport offering flights throughout North America, Europe and Asia. And this week it announced uh, that it was involved in a breach, which is kind of surprising, I guess, to some extent, because... Um, it's an airport, so you know capacity for them may have decreased in this unusual period. Um, but obviously, this story um, has a lot, lot more to it. So I thought Demelza could maybe just uh, provide an overview about what happened here. Absolutely. Um, so San Francisco Airport announced last week that two of their domains were compromised back in March. The uh, two sites in question related to passenger information and construction work. Both sites experienced malicious code injects to harvest the user's personal Windows credentials, which is really interesting because it appears that the attack wasn't actively targeting the airport's own servers, but the user's own Windows credentials that they used to log into their personal devices. The uh, statement put out by the airport stated that the users um, who were likely most, most vulnerable were those who accessed the site from outside the airport's managed network. I think that was what was, um, when I first saw the story, I was like, oh, okay, um, is this impacting the like the customers directly going through the airport because whenever I've traveled to an airport, I've never really gone on the airport's website. So this was a quite an unusual case in that aspect because it was targeting a domain. So the end user is, is very different in this case. Um, we know that the breach happened in March and they've only just released it, the details now. So I wonder, do we know any details around when they detected it or, or like how, did they did they, how they discovered the breach? Sure, yeah. So um, they haven't give us, given us many specific dates, but they have said that um, on, the, on the 23rd of March, they asked, or there was a forced reset uh, for all of um, their employees. So I guess we can, um, backcasting from there, we can assume that the breach was discovered sometime around, sometime around early March. So we're talking kind of before most of the, um, of the travel bans actually hit the US. Mm, yeah, exactly. I also think... Um, when I thought again, when I first read the story, I thought, oh, okay, this must have happened during lockdown, which might have been a bit unusual because it wouldn't be having um, so much demand in that space. But yeah, I guess the reporting is a bit unclear at this stage, but it does indicate that it was a bit earlier. Um, something that has been um, revealed since uh, San Francisco Airport released the news is that um, it's been reported that Russian state hackers have um, been linked to this. So, Jamie, I don't know if you have any more details or exactly around the group. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't love a kind of Russian espionage twist to the tale? Um, but yeah, as you say, the, the story was, or the attack was linked to Energetic Bear, who are kind of linked to the Russian government. Um, and they've typically gone after the energy sector in the past, you know, across quite a few geographies. Um, they have some kind of limited activity that has targeted um, airports before, um, but it's certainly not their, their kind of main, main area of focus, at least in the past. So I guess one question is, is this an isolated incident or is this part of a kind of broader campaign that they are either, you know, they either have been conducting or will be conducting against 
you know, the aviation sector, maybe the kind of US aviation sector, that at the moment isn't, you know, isn't particularly clear. I think, um, I think one thing that's interesting there is, is, you know, why they would do this, you know, if they're, if they're doing it for espionage reasons, um, they might be targeting the airport itself. Uh, it might be all those kind of third parties, you know, this isn't a military uh, airport, but, you know, you might have some kind of military infrastructure there, other sorts of critical infrastructure related to the airport, uh, you know, the oil tankers, all of that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, you could also be targeting the travellers, the people passing through the airport. So this is something we've seen quite a lot with espionage actors targeting hotels, for instance, because of the number of, you know, potentially high value individuals going through those places. So, you know, that could potentially be an angle, but uh, quite hard to say at this point. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it is unusual to see espionage linked to this, to an airport specifically. I guess like in, in other campaigns, it tends to be related to I guess more sophisticated or um, sophisticated cases. So yeah, this was quite unusual from my perspective. Um, so yeah, we understand that airport capacity has has uh, certainly decreased during this time, but I do wonder if internal security could have weakened at the same time. So in this period, that maybe perhaps they would have um, focuses in other areas. So I think this is definitely a question that we probably can't answer on this podcast. We don't have access to the internal security personnel working in this airport, but it does, does kind of ask those broader questions. I guess, the, I guess the one point we can really drive home is that while um, this was obviously targeted at an airport, this was actually quite a, a generic attack. This could have happened to any website that was this, 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 um, this vulnerable. And I think it really highlights that um, while obviously much uh, security architecture really focuses on internally managed networks, this actually really really targeted those that were accessing internal information from an external network for example one of the, the, the domains affected was um, actually about building um, building work on the air, um, on the airport itself so that was being accessed by building contractors and third parties so this was actually um, I guess focusing on a vulnerability that perhaps it's quite easy for some personnel to to um, look over, especially in these, in these, in these very stressful times. So um, I think that's definitely a lesson learned for any, any company, especially in a time of crisis. That was a really good point. Did you also want to link it to um, another airport breach? You, I remember you mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we think back to December 2019, um, Albany State County, I think Albany County Airport um, around New York was targeted, but that was an attack that was far more focused upon internal servers. Um, and actually getting access to the airport's um, internal systems. Um, so I think it's interesting, you have to, you have to look at kind of similar um, attack spaces, but actually a very different, um, different threat in this case. Awesome. So in other news, we have a new campaign by the cybercrime uh, group called Fin6, who have been traditionally associated with uh, aggressively targeting and compromising point of sale systems in the hospitality and the retail sector. So yeah, Jamie was just going to touch on the latest campaigns. Um, so over to you. Yes, yeah, so this most uh, recent, recently reported campaign, uh, Fintix was working with uh, you know, TrickBot tools that they previously used in their campaigns. Um, so TrickBot was used to kind of uh, establish that initial infection. Um, and then they used a, a more new, you know, more recent tool called Anchor, which is a kind of natural framework. It's um, you know, a malware in itself rather than just a module uh, of TrickBot. Um, and that was used to, in tar- you know, relatively targeted attacks um, to, you know, target point of sale uh, terminals, things like that. So um, in terms of that, that attribution to Fin6, there was overlap um, in the R key, which is used uh, in, in the encryption process to communicate with a command and control server 
with um, previous uh, FinSICs kind of malware. So it was a malware variant called MoreEggs. Now other threat actors have used MoreEggs, so you know we can't be sure about the the link, but it, you know none of them have used it with Tripbot. So all the kind of cards are aligning and you know making it look like this is potentially a FinSICs campaign. Yeah, and it's probably worth explaining the the partnership between Fin6 and Trickbot because I actually don't know much about this area. Yeah, and it's not particularly clear to be honest. So the reporting does talk about how that they partnered with Trickbot and you know talking about them together in terms of a partnership. Um, but you know that can mean a lot of things uh, in cybersecurity, and there's a, there's a real spectrum of different sorts of partnerships that we can see. So you know on the one hand, the kind of most loose partnerships that might just be a kind of buy and sell arrangement. Um, it could just be one transaction, you know, you could potentially call that a, a very kind of loose partnership. On the other hand, there are different threat actors that we think are in partnership, but actually the lines are so blurry and they might even be the same actor. They might be, you know, sharing so much infrastructure that they're kind of seen as the same. So I think within that spectrum of very close partnerships to very kind of, you know, blurry loose ones, it's, it's, it's difficult to say exactly where this uh, lies. I think it probably looks like it's kind of a strategic partnership using different kind of malware as a service, something kind of consistent with what Fin6 have done before in terms of working with others or you know using tools from other kind of malware developers. So for me, that looks like the most likely uh, kind of hypothesis at the moment rather than a kind of more formal partnership between um, Fin6 and the malware developers behind Tripbot. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because you often hear so many well, you often hear partnerships are very related to like the corporate world. So when it applies to this ecosystem, it is, it's interesting from that perspective. And then in terms of like the actual uh, like activity, it does seem that there's a lot of variety to this. So um, yeah, Fin6 has conducted quite a few different sort of campaigns in the last few years. So what could explain that? Yeah, you're certainly right there. So um, in many ways, this latest campaign does kind of uh, fit within the kind of traditional fin6 uh, attack vectors which is you know going after point of sale devices things like that but i think in the last couple of years they've been doing all sorts of things that's including kind of targeting e-commerce organizations through card skimming campaigns what would traditionally kind of uh, associate with kind of mage cart activity um, and then also using uh, ransomware so they've you know previously used the lockagoga uh, ransomware variant and it's not quite clear why they're trying all these different things. I think, I think one area that for me that's the most convincing is that there's that natural evolution. And, and as the threat landscape changes, as different tools or different opportunities present themselves, Fin6 has been able to kind of, you know, uh, follow those different trends and kind of pursue different opportunities. But I think there's two other things that are really worth considering. I think one thing is, you know, we talk about Fin6 as one of, my, one of the most sophisticated uh, cyber criminal groups. Um, and you know, increasingly professionalized cyber criminal group. And I think one one area we could we could look at is potentially that they're developing specialties. So you know, what, almost like a kind of nation state where you have an overarching uh, threat actor, but you, you know, you might have different departments, different kind of groups or teams. And it could be that Fin6 has that now, where they have the traditional point of sale attacks, and they maybe have other teams conducting other sorts of attacks. Um, and then the other the other thing to always consider with cyber criminal groups is that there's been splinter groups. So. Uh, you know, unlike a kind of state uh, espionage group, uh, you know, the, the boundaries with cyber crime are a bit, uh, a bit more loose. And it could be that, you know, criminals are kind of working for Fin6 in the day and then maybe doing a bit of moonlighting on the side using some of those tools. Uh, maybe that's where we see the things like ransomware, etc. So you're certainly right. There's a real breadth of activity here. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to kind of track what they get up to in the next few months and, you know, whether they continue that or if they kind of, you know, finally make their mind up and decide what they want to be doing. Yeah.
a very complicated one to track as well to link it all together so um yeah this is very um interesting to hear it from your perspective okay so yeah jamie actually just touched on the fact that um fin6 uh, would change or may change its activity um within the landscape um and so that could be down to lots of contextual factors um there's actually been a report that's been published so uh, this week that was a report published by FireEye. um so in the in the current landscape of course it it might seem like our whole world has been turned upside down in light of lockdowns um got new habits new ways of working um and that may seem like um cyber criminals or their, their sort of tactics are changing in light of this climate too and to some extent we have seen that but FireEye have published a, a threat research report highlighting that the, uh, the threat cyber criminal landscape has not changed so much Demelza, so what are your thoughts on this Yes, yeah, so the, the report was published last week, which offers a really interesting counter-narrative um, that perhaps the cyber landscape hasn't changed quite as much as we initially thought. Um, yes, I think the most interesting fact to, to have come out of the report is actually that um, out of all the malicious emails that FireEye have identified over, over the month of March, um, only 2% actually make references to COVID which is a tiny, tiny amount. And um, I think this um, really highlights um, an interesting, I guess, contrast between our perception and reality. It's quite exciting for us all um, as cybersec professionals that, uh, that suddenly InfoSec is becoming kind of a mainstream headline. Um, but actually, I think all of the press um, attention perhaps um, doesn't quite um, represent that really it is business as usual for most, most um, threat actors. And we've seen them take advantage of uh, of crisis before and, and perhaps this isn't actually as exceptional as initially thought. I think one thing I really like about this sort of uh, reporting is it's you know it's data driven so we can talk all we want about you know different kind of trends in the threat landscape but as you say if, if it's only two percent and if we're actually looking at that uh, you know from a data point of view we can really start to capture what we should be worried about what we shouldn't be. Um, I think there is that really difficult balancing act isn't there because I think what the report suggests is that a lot of uh, phishing has kind of stayed the same and it's those kind of you know fake uh, password reset uh, emails or um, you know you've won a prize kind of emails all of that stuff remains really effective um, so that there is that balance between you know we want to report new trends um, and you know new developments and that's part of what we all in the kind of intelligence industry want to do kind of bring attention to those but I think I think as you say to Melza there's a risk that we kind of over egg them and we, we kind of make them seem much more prevalent than they are um, and then that potentially uh, runs the risk of serving as a kind of distraction from what is actually, you know, the more significant threat out there. I, yeah, I, I do very much agree with you to, that, uh, to the point around um, where some, some stories might be uh, not reflective of what's actually happening. Because I think we, we spoke about this two weeks ago when we were talking about um, Zoom getting a lot of attention. Um, and I, and I just think it, it it kind of skews the landscape and such because we see it at that moment in time that this is representative of something much broader. So yeah, I, I do think that this report is refreshing. It kind of, kind of grounds us a bit. It says this is actually, as you said, based on data so we can refer to this. So um, yeah, I like it. So I'm going to squeeze one last uh, thing into the podcast and that is news around the ransomware operators behind Sodno Kibi, who actually posted to a forum that they are starting to accept Monero cryptocurrency to make it harder for law, law enforcement to trace them. So um, traditionally or previously, they may have used uh, Bitcoin and in a, in a post, the hacker in 
sorry, in a post on a hacker and malware forum, the Sodnog Kiwi operators announced their pref preference for Monero, saying that cryptocurrency makes it more challenging for law enforcement authorities to trace ransom payments, particularly. Um, it's also quite interesting because um, I actually had read that um, this was via like a, a Reddit uh, post, but. Um, Europol had also admitted uh, to some extent that it is harder to trace Monero as well. So sort of supporting the argument there that um, Monero is probably um, best to kind of lead with when you're perhaps doing some illicit activities. I think the thing that's interesting for me with this is clearly, you know, they're trying to do this to, you know, reduce the chances of getting caught by law enforcement. And, and the question is, you know, is this in response to anything specific? Is this just general them trying to improve their OPSEC? Or, you know, we, we've heard reports of uh, some of the intelligence agencies starting to kind of focus on the ransomware groups uh, in response to COVID and, the, you know, targeting of hospitals. So I don't know if there's any, you know, the potential that they're trying to do this in part because of a kind of more muscular uh, law enforcement intelligence kind of agency effort to kind of actually target uh, these groups and catch them. So I think that's the first question. I guess the, the second question is to what extent is this going to be part of a broader trend? You know, we've seen a lot of ransomware groups in the last six months start to leak data uh, from victims. And, you know, maybe the next kind of thing that we'll be talking about is them all uh, shifting to more secure payment methods. I think also in particular, so for those who might not be aware of Monero, so unlike a Monero, so details of Bitcoin transactions are actually recorded permanently on the blockchain after uh, after Bitcoin is sent and received. So those details can actually unveil clues that can be used to pinpoint identities of the owners of digital wallets. Um, and this has also become increasingly easy with the advent of co companies that specialize in analyzing blockchain transactions. Um, now, obviously, the, like these words might, might be foreign to quite a few people, but um, yeah, it does, it does require a degree of technical knowledge. But, you know, we're these stories um, and these developments that we're kind of talking about are, I guess, linked to groups who have that level of technical knowledge and sophistication and are willing to, um, to, to adapt their um, tactics um, in light of this. So, um, yeah, that, I just think it's quite interesting to talk about the differences um, between Monero and Bitcoin transactions. In other developments, we also have a post that was uh, linked to the Sodnokibi kind of group and this was a post that re was released on the russian language cybercriminal forum xss and a user was claiming to know the user who runs the sodnokibi ransomware group um, and the post actually kind of said that um, this user had worked with the group in the past um, and had um, helped them create a ransomware um, involved in this ransomware program that was sort of supported by the ransomware group and um, because of the, because they had helped the group, um, this was around four years ago, it was detailed in the post, they were requesting um, $190,000, I think, to be returned to that user, um, which was, yeah, I guess, um, quite unusual on that on extent. And um, if they did not return that money, um, they would reveal the identity of the group. So this is something more to watch, but it is a development linked to um, the ransomware group. Um, and there's all kind of like these um, complications um, within the um, landscape. Um, I think questions for me are, you know, why is this user coming out four years later? Um, I guess other questions are, will they actually cough up the money? 
Um, so yeah, this is something that has been happening um, on XSS, the Cyber Criminal Forum. So yeah, I'm quite interested to see how this develops in the next week, but something that might be interesting to bring out right now. Someone must have got furloughed and need some money. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Oh, it's like, oh, I'll just remember the money that I'm, I'm owed four years ago. Um, so yeah, it, it is, it's an interesting one to watch. Um, then, so yeah, that kind of covers the stories impacting the industry. And as I touched on earlier, the um, Digital Shadows has actually published quite a few blogs around um, remote working. So we have a new piece of content from our CEO, Alistair Patterson, and he looks retrospectively at the rush towards remote working and then kind of outlines some various risks um, that may result from this new kind of world that we're living in. So that's definitely um, a really nice high level overview um, about what to kind of look out for when in this period. And then on top of that, we also have a webinar, um, which is actually hosted by our CISO, Rick Holland, and security analyst, Isidoros. And that is on the remote working landscape. So to, yeah, together, these are quite super, uh, very informative and they provide a helping hand to organizations who are now working remote. So lots of juicy content. And as per, you can, all, you can always view that at resources.digitalshadows.com. So, yeah, that sums it up for this week's episode. Thank you, JV and Demelza, for joining me. Thanks, Vic. Thanks for having us.